0: War-torn and weary, Le Prince had returned from the siege of Paris to Leeds and had begun to put down roots in the town. He had taken on responsibility in Whitley Partners' brass foundry and manufactory, becoming their draftsman, an agent or traveller, representing them on the continent and he was also tasked with overseeing the finishing shops in the railway works on Hunslet Road. He had then withdrawn from the business to join his wife, Lizzie, in starting a school of art in the town, which met with great success. He had invested in property. He had involved himself with the social and intellectual circles of the town, joining, for example, the Leeds Philosophical and Literary Society and the Leeds Fine Art Club. He attended their exhibitions, exhibited at them and even helped to set them up. He also started a family. By the end of 1875, the Le Princes had seen the birth of a daughter, Marie, a son, Adolphe, and another daughter, Aimée. The Le Princes seemed the very model of a 19th century middle-class family. The Whitley family motto, fit via V, or very roughly translated as Labour will find a way through, was as applicable to Le Prince as it was to his Whitley in-laws, and although he was more unassuming than most, Le Prince was certainly possessed of an abundance of determination. Lizzie would recall an incident concerning the 1875 Yorkshire Exhibition by way of illustration. The Duke of Edinburgh was expected to open the Leeds Exhibition of Arts, and our Technical School of Art, ...made great preparations for its exhibit. One of the unexpected kiln happenings... ...that are the joy or despair of potters... ...for are not all firings more or less of a gamble... ...made it imperative to re-fire a portion of this exhibit... ...at an unusual heat... ...on the night preceding the opening of the exhibition. Flames from the oak wood used for fuel... ...shot high above our chimney... ...and soon after midnight... My husband called hurriedly that the house might fire and that I and the maids must wrap the babies in blankets and stand on the stairs ready to run if he gave the signal. Our Member of Parliament for Leeds, Mr Beckett Dennison, driving past, noticed the flames, stopped his carriage and thundered at our door and finding it impossible to make my husband give up his firing, stood by in case of need. After passing the crucial moment the firer threw all the salt he could find onto the flames to deaden the fire and then laid sacrilegious hands upon my best and biggest damask tablecloth that was airing off on a clothes horse nearby and used it, alas, to cover the entire opening of the old-fashioned fireplace that held his mouffler and the danger was past. Ironically When the story of the fire was told at a civic dinner the next day it simply brought more and more people to the school's exhibit which in turn resulted in so many new applications from would-be pupils that it was decided to move into larger premises. The Shadow Traps, Episode 7, 1875 If this was a year that saw conspicuous success for Le Prince, it saw crises for his friend and brother-in-law, John Whitley. Whitley's time, steering the family firm through expansion, exhibition success, financial uncertainty and numerous disputes, might be described as somewhat gung-ho. But then... A lot of 19th century business was. I can only imagine that in this age of increasing speed and scale, where railways sliced through distance and time, industrial processes churned the earth, and mechanical reproduction of goods and weapons and artwork saw a sudden proliferation of just about everything, that people's sense of possibility and ambition must have been dizzying at times. Could financial and legal conventions keep up with all this? Business in such an environment must have been a kind of Wild West. John Whitley was a man whose temperament seemed at first to suit a Wild West. According to a biographical sketch of him, The striking personality of Mr Whitley, who is a native of Yorkshire, has inherited all the virtues, physical and mental, of that fine and famous breed of Englishmen. And according to Phrenological magazine, he is full of animal life, is warm and ardent, if not impulsive and excitable, throws a great amount of feeling into everything he does and cannot be a half and half kind of man. The entire base of his brain is large and has a strong hold on life and he believes in living as he goes along. He has great executive power, is in his element when he is pushing business or business, is pushing him. He does not mind opposition and ordinary obstacles. They only nerve him to greater work. During the 1870s, John Whitley had taken more and more control over the running of Whitley partners from his ageing father, whose retirement had been announced in 1873 when the firm had reorganised itself and become a limited company. However, John's time at the helm was not always successful. Leeds Mercury, 6th of October 1875 Failure of Whitley Partners Ltd Yesterday, Vice-Chancellor Bacon, sitting as vacation judge in Chancery at Lincoln's Inn, heard a petition for the compulsory winding up of Whitley Partners Ltd. The petitioners were William Williams, Brown and Co., a bank to whom Whitley Partners owed around £9,000 and incidentally for whom Le Prince's close friend Richard Wilson worked. The company also owed to various people £2,000 in dishonoured bills of exchange. On the 6th of September 1875, Whitley Partners had discharged half of its workforce. The freehold on the railway works, the Whitley's foundry was still subject to the vendor's lien for £40,000, meaning that if the sum wasn't paid off, the vendor had the right to repossess the property. Whitley Partners was collapsing. This was just one of several misadventures. To give John Whitley his due, the company's problems had not come through the indolence of inheriting a family business, but through an overreaching ambition that continued to stretch Whitley Partners' finances. And even while many problems festered, the company continued to win prizes at major exhibitions. However, as the company's problems grew, Joseph Whitley had little choice but to come out of retirement to take the reins back off his son, who then seems to have disappeared off to Paris out of the reach of angry creditors. Interestingly, In the book, Four Exhibitions and Their Organiser by Charles Lowe, written several years later and in happier times for John, the author puts forward a slightly different version of events. Ill health from overwork induced him to relinquish his share in the family business and to seek rest, combined with new ideas, in travel. The book... Four exhibitions, written at a time when John's career was in the ascendant, is a work of such hagiography that it is hard not to conclude that Whitley was himself involved in its writing, and this brazen misremembrance about his fall from grace at Whitley Partners is just one of several to be found in accounts of John Whitley's life. 1875 had seen success and failure, and now it saw something else. This is a passage from Career of L.A.A. A. Le Prince by Ernest Kilburn Scott. In 1875, the series of photographs taken by Edward Mybridge at Palo Alto, near where Hollywood now stands, were published, and Le Prince was attracted to the idea of producing series of photographs, in other words, moving pictures. I'll wager that this is one of the least explored statements in all biographies of Le Prince. Most people familiar with histories of photography and film are aware that Mybridge's work influenced pretty much all the early film pioneers. To see that he is supposed to have influenced Le Prince as well is something that we probably assumed anyway. But I am struck here by the year that Scott gives, 1875. This can't be right, because I don't believe that Mybridge had published a series of photographs of his Palo Alto experiments by then. A single image from his 1872 and 1873 experiments, yes, but no series, nothing that showed the different stages of movement in one sequence and he would not publish any series until after 1875. The French scientist Etienne Jules Marais would publish a series of photographs of motion in his seminal La machine animale, published in France in 1873. So there is a swirl of information here, none of which matches Scott's statement. By the time Scott published his memorial booklet on Le Prince, published in 1930, he had found a less arguable wording. In the early 70s, Edward Mybridge photographed the movements of racehorses with about two dozen separate cameras. His work attracted worldwide attention and, seeing the possibilities in animated pictures, Le Prince began experimenting but I think that the worldwide attention really came years later and Scott has produced a wonderful piece of language here which could mean several different things. He is far clearer in at least two other pieces of writing on Le Prince, the pioneer work of Le Prince and the career of L.A.A. A. Le Prince, both of which say explicitly that the series of Mybridge photographs was published in 1875. This small, inconspicuous detail fascinates me, so much so that I have gone with Scott's chronology, which is why we will begin our look at Mybridge now, in 1875, although I think the year given is incorrect. It is a mistake, or something else. Edward Muybridge is one of the great and abiding influences on film and photography. I say abiding because his sequence images with subjects against a plain background or a uniform abstracted background retain a visual potency that still bleeds into the aesthetics of photography and art today. Muybridge produced the analyses of movement using sequence photography. His aim initially was not to recreate movement, but to freeze it so that movement itself could be dissected and examined. It was a strange path that took him to this. Edward Mybridge, Edward spelt E A D W E A R D, had actually been born Malcolm Muggeridge in the Kingston upon Thames area of London on April the ninth, eighteen thirty. He would only settle upon the name Edward Mybridge after several name changes, a fluid sign of self-invention and reinvention. He emigrated to America in 1851, where he became a bookseller. In the summer of 1860, he suffered a serious injury to the head when the stagecoach in which he was travelling careered down the side of a mountain and crashed. It is thought that he may have suffered injuries to the frontal lobe of the brain which altered his personality. It was after this that he began changing his name, which he did several times and, during a period of convalescence in England, became interested in photography. In 1867, Mybridge, under the pseudonym Helios, travelled the Wild West with his camera and a mobile darkroom he called the Flying Studio. And we should appreciate that before he made his name with sequence photography, he had a very successful career as a more conventional photographer, documenting the landscapes and peoples of a West that was fast disappearing. Most of his photographs were stereoscopic, in other words, with 3D stereoscopic photography being hugely popular in the 19th century. Some other of his photographs were panoramas, huge images of landscapes and cityscapes that were made from several photographs joined together in order to take in the expansive views. In 1872, he took on a new and very different commission. The president of the Central Pacific Railroad, Leyland Stanford Jr., hired Mybridge to devise a way of recording the movement of a horse so as to determine whether, when running, there is a point at which all four of its legs are off the ground simultaneously. The legend has it that this was done to settle a bet, however this is almost certainly untrue. Stanford, who wasn't a betting man, had a passion for horses, owning, breeding and racing them, and was interested in learning as much about all aspects of them as he could. In May 1872, at the Union Park racecourse at Sacramento, Mybridge set up multiple cameras and took pictures of Stanford's favourite horse, Occident. The results were not a total success. This will have been down primarily to the slow shutter speeds of the cameras of the time. The longer a shutter took to open and close, allowing light into the camera to expose the film, the more likely a moving object would be blurred. In 1873, he tried again, with enough success that one frame of the images was used as a lithographed print by Courier and Ives. After that, Mybridge turned to other things for a while, and in 1873 travelled into territory that belonged to the Modoc tribes of Native Americans, capturing the people and locations connected with the recent battles of the Modoc War, in which the tribe was driven from its land by the US Army. These were years of adventure, drama and achievement. But Ernest Kilburn Scott gives as the year that Le Prince became aware of Mybridge's work as 1875. What was Mybridge doing in 1875? The main events in his life that year were a journey to Central America to take photographs for the Pacific Mail Steamship Company and before that, oh yes, and before that ...he was put on trial for murder. In 1872, Mybridge had married Flora Stone... ...who went on to conduct an affair with a dashing young con man named Harry Larkins. On discovering that the son Mybridge thought was his was Larkins, and specifically on finding a photograph of his son with a note referring to him as Little Harry, Mybridge sought out his rival. He found him at the Yellow Jacket Mine in Calistoga at a party at the mine superintendent's house that night. Mybridge knocked at the door and asked for Larkins. I will only detain him a moment, he said. Larkins came to the door. Who are you? he asked. My name is Mybridge, and I have a message for you from my wife. And then Mybridge shot and killed his wife's lover. He made no attempt to escape. In fact, once taken into the parlour, he apologised to the women there for the interruption. Mybridge was put on trial for murder in February 1875. His defence was justifiable homicide and insanity induced by mental anguish. His lawyers put on a reviewer performance. William Wirt Pendergast, leading the defence, pleaded with a jury. But I do ask you to send him forth free. Let him take up the thread of his broken life and resume that profession upon which his genius has shed so much lustre, the profession which is now his only love. Let him go forth into the green fields, by the bright waters, through the beautiful valleys, and up and down the swelling coast, and in the active work of securing shadows of their beauty by the magic of his art, he may gain surcease of sorrow. And pass on to his allotted end in comparative peace. Despite Mybridge's own plea of insanity, the jury, tough married frontiersmen who thought Mybridge was justified in killing Larkins for seducing his wife, found him not guilty without finding him insane. In the weeks to come, we will look at Mybridge's cameras, his early sequence photography, and his later inventions that brought such photographs to life. For having captured movement in single images, he went on to capture the stages of movement in a series of photographs taken rapidly, one after the other, and he would bring these brief bursts of movement to life with his invention, the zoopraxoscope. And we'll look at everything from his increasing shutter speeds to the conceptual brilliance of his setup at Stanford's ranch, not now, though, because now we are in eighteen seventy five and these things do not yet exist, which brings me back to my fascination with Scott's claim that eighteen seventy five was a year that Mybridge's sequences of motion inspired le Prince. It could be that the prince read or heard about the 1872 experiments, perhaps in a journal held at the Leeds Philosophical and Literary Society's library. Perhaps he just happened to read about it in 1875, just became aware then of the ability to capture a horse moving in a photograph, and then just extrapolated and envisaged a sequence of photographs brought to life. Perhaps the Prince read or heard about the more successful 1873 experiments and perhaps he came across the Courier and Ives lithograph of Occident in motion. Perhaps Le Prince read about the 1875 murder trial which in turn led him to learn about Mybridge's work. But there's still a problem for me with the specific nature of Scott's assertion that the series of photographs taken by Edward Mybridge were published. Because regardless of how Le Prince came to hear of Mybridge's work, he would only, I am sure, have known that the results of it consisted of single images rather than whole sequences. Scott might have simply been wrong about the date. But it is a striking error that has survived many drafts and revisions and various different tellings of the Le Prince story and found itself passed and printed in at least two different articles. And it is the one clear error that comes to us without a clear source. Now I can go through all Scott's writings with some idea I think of where each bit of information has come from. Details of his work for example come from patent descriptions, testimony from his assistants even Scott's own experiences of working with the Prince on the arc lights for the projector. Personal information came from the memoirs of Lizzie and Adolphe Le Prince and from further notes supplied to him by the Le Princes. But this detail about Mybridge simply appears and it is the combination of impossible date and lack of a source that caught my attention. My theory about this only makes sense in relation to future events. So for now, I will allow an event that I don't think could have happened in 1875 to be placed here in our chronology. And I believe its significance is such that I have named this episode simply 1875. 1875, the midpoint of a decade. The year which saw the birth of the Le Prince's middle child, and which saw their work as artists shine in the Yorkshire Exhibition of Arts and Manufacture, and conversely, which saw John Whitley's fortunes seem to plummet with the failure of Whitley Partners and the petitioning for a compulsory wind up of the firm, and possibly the year in which Le Prince discovered the work of Edward Mybridge. A year of contrasting fortunes. A year, perhaps, of clues. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to find out more about this project or perhaps support it in some way, please go to my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps.